Okay. I'm glad you're here. Um, there's a bunch that I want to share, and I just want to start with a story, something that happened uh, to me last night, um, actually on Shabbos, toward the end of Shabbos. Uh, right now, this is uh, on, the, on, the, on the Jewish calendar, it's the 20th of the uh, month of Teves, which is, um, which is the yurt site. It's actually, it's, it's, it's the day, today is the day that my, uh, my, my son, he got hit by a car. He was, this was about, this was about, I guess, uh, I don't know, 11 at the time. And uh, he was holding my uh, daughter's hand, so it was, it was the two of them. She wasn't hit, thank God. She's was younger than him, and I don't know what would have happened if she had gotten hit. But the car plowed into my son, and uh, his head broke the windshield of the car, and he got thrown on the street, and then just stood up and walked away. Wow. So it was really a, a, just a, a total miracle. Two miracles, really. One, that, that he was okay, and two, that my daughter wasn't hit, because she was right there. And um, so thank God, I just want to just acknowledge this miracle and just say thanks to God for it. So, so yeah, thank God. Thank God. And so I bring that up because um, I got an email uh, this week. Uh, my wife Judy was kind of looking into the date, this date on the calendar, and she noticed that, that today, the, this day, the 20th of um, the month of Teves, is uh, the earth site, the anniversary of the death of the Rambam, uh, Maimonides, who is one of the you know greatest, 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 greatest uh, people that ever lived, and certainly uh, one of the greatest of our rabbis. He lived in, Egypt? in Egypt, also, yeah, in the 1200s. So the Rambam is Ramban. Yeah, this is Maimonides. Maimonides yeah. yeah. So this is um, this today is his his year site. So this is a special day for that. So I had it in the back of my mind that. Starting Saturday night, right? That that's the Rambam Sertzai. So so yesterday in Shul, it was Mincha, and there's a prayer that um, that that uh, is is uh, it's in the prayer book. It's called people call it the Kelmale. Kelmale is you say it uh, on the earth side if you of your father, maybe your grandfather, your mother, your grandmother, when their earth side rolls around. It's a special prayer that you say. So someone holds the Torah scroll in their hand. That's a short prayer. And you say that basically their, their soul, their neshama should have a, an elevation, an aliyah. And then there's a little section where you say your relationship to the deceased. And in the prayer book, it's usually you're, you're the son of or the daughter of. Right? Because basically you say this if there's a direct connection between you and the deceased. You know? Whether you're the son, grandson, daughter, granddaughter, whatever it is. Okay. So now, um, uh, after w- when we got up to this portion of the of the of the uh, of the service, uh, one of the people said, "I want to say a kalmale for my grandmother," and he picked up the Torah scroll and he started to recite it. And he said, "It's her yurt site. The anniversary of her death, right? Is." is tonight, right, which, which I'm standing right there, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, tonight, that's the 20th of Teves. And then I think to myself, you know, it's also the Rambam's yurt site. And then I think to myself, you know, we should say a Kalmale for the Rambam. Yeah. Now, generally speaking, generally speaking, you don't, um, you, people don't, I haven't seen that done so much. Like, for instance, if there's a tzaddik, and you want to honor his yurtzeit, you can light a candle in your home. That's a beautiful thing to do, you know. And, um, and there are many opportunities throughout the year to do that. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But to actually say a kelmale, you know, that special prayer is more, you know, like I said, it says in the prayer book, that's like if it was your father, your grandfather, something like this. Not just for someone who is great in Jewish history. Do you just say a kelmale, right? So... So, so he picks up the Torah scroll and he's saying it for his grandmother. And then I think to myself, you know, I want him to say it for the Rambam also. And like I said, this isn't really 
done so much. But I just had it in my... It just felt like I want him to do it. So I said to him, I said, I'll make, make another one. I said, make it for the Rambam. Moshe ben Maimon. You know? Because you have to say his name. His name and his father's name. So I know it's Moshe ben Maimon. And then I'm thinking to myself, what is he going to say when he gets to the portion of his relationship? But whatever it was, it, I just thought, just go ahead and say it. So he's holding the Torah scroll. He's just said it for his grandmother. And then he said, for the Rambam, he said, I'm a direct descendant to the Rambam. And then he said, <laughs> so in other words, it was appropriate, it was appropriate even within the strictness of this, of this, of, of, of the design of this prayer that it was very appropriate for him to say. Uh, yes, and he knows, and, and he said, he said, and my grandmother, who is, who I just said the Kaumale for, it's from her line. So she has the same yurt site as the Ramba. So, so that's a, it was really far out. It was a far out moment, you know. You know, it says in the Gomorrah, how close is the next world to this world? And they give a bit of imagery, which, which I really love, because it's, it's so clear, and yet it's so deep. It says that the next world is connected to this world like one cup inside of another cup. You know, like when you stack cups? So you take one cup and you put it in another cup. That's how close the next world is to this world. And I love the, when you stack cups, that's what it's talking about. And then they say, the next world is as close as to this world as two hairs on the same head. And I love that, the imagery of stacking cups, because if you think of it from the perspective of the bottom cup, the cup that penetrates it is, it, it's a separate dimension, but it's a separate dimension which exists within this dimension. In other words, in other words, the next world is so close to this world, it's separate because it has its own walls, if you will, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it, it's, it's another dimension that exists somehow intersecting with this dimension. And not only that, but it says that tzaddikim can do more in the next world than they can do in this world, in terms of what they're able to accomplish in this world. So, so if someone elevates themselves and refines themselves, and even to the extent that we can say it perfects themselves, they have a tie to this world where, they're, where they can interact into this world. Now, certainly the Rambam would be in that category, right? So to think that there's a relationship between our great tzaddikim, who are no longer with us, and yet who are very much with us. You know, in last week's Parsha, Yaakov Avinu leaves the world, and we talked about this at length, the notion that we don't use the word uh, died in, when we speak uh, in, a, in, a, in a Torah-appropriate way. We say that the person is nifter. And nifter just means left. It doesn't mean died. And we're not using it euphemistically. We're not trying to avoid saying the word died. We want to use the word accurately. So the accurate expression is that the person has just left because they're still alive. But again, there's that interconnection between the next world and this world. And certainly between the tzaddikim in this world. Okay. So now, I want to, um, I want to talk about a couple of things. Some deep things, actually. And, uh, and we just started a new book in the Torah, uh, Sefer Shmos, the book of Shmos. In English, we call it Exodus. But Shmos is called names. Na that's what the word means. Shmos means names. Now, in the beginning of the book of Shmos, it's talking about our enslavement in Egypt. And now over the next six weeks, this period in the calendar, and God willing, we'll talk about it a little bit more later, called Shovavim, this period of the calendar, it's the next six um, parshas of the Torah. And if you take the 
first letter of each of the parshas, it spells out this word Shovavim. Um, so, so it's it's chronicling the birth of the nation of the Jewish people, going from slavery to leaving Egypt amidst the signs and the wonders, to the splitting of the Red Sea, to the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So it's really, it's the heart of the Torah. And a lot of work can be done, the Kabbalists talk about this, that this period of the year is especially appropriate for doing a lot of soul fixing. And if you think about it, imagine, this is my imagery, but imagine you took a Torah scroll and you kind of like unrolled it on a long table. This section that we're in right now would be the beating heart of the Torah. You know, if you imagine like a surgery table, this would be the beating heart of the Torah. And so, so to speak, we have access to open heart surgery, if you will, at this part of the year. Because whatever is going on in the Torah is going on in the world. And as Rabbi Wolfson put it so beautifully, God takes the fabric of reality that's going on in terms of that week and he weaves it out of the letters of that week's Parsha. So, so if you think about what the essence of the narrative of the Torah is, like what the main story of the Torah is, it's really the Jewish people going from slavery in Egypt through signs and wonders, getting freedom, and then receiving the Torah. That is the heart of the story of the Torah. And that's where we are right now. So the type of fixing that can be done at this stage in the year is, 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 quite, is quite significant and dramatic. <clears throat> now, now again, the book, this book of the Torah has another name. And it's called Sefer Geula, which means the book of redemption. And so now I'd like to connect these two things and talk about them and show you how these two things go together, and, 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 and not in just an academic way, God forbid, but to show us in our own lives the necessity of understanding the connection between these two ideas. On the one hand, this is called the Book of Names. Sefer Shmos means the Book of Names. On the other hand, it's called the Book of Geula, the Book of Redemption. So what is the connection between names and redemption, between names and redemption. And so, I'd like to suggest the following interplay. You see, when someone names something, the ability to name something is the ability to define your terms. If someone else is defining the terms of your life for you, you are existing within their structure. And oftentimes that means being outright enslaved by them. Because you are then subject to all of the expectations that go along with the definition of their terms. So let me give you a few... Uh, one. I think, very compelling example. The word success. How someone defines the word success is going to... I mean, that's a very dramatic word, especially in today's society. Everyone wants to be a success. No one doesn't want to be a success. And so, if that's the case, that there's so much at stake, then how one defines success is going to be a very dramatic way in terms of how you choose to live your life. Do you understand? Now, if you allow someone to define the word success for you, then that's a... You, you, you exist within their bonds. You see, when the Jewish people left Egypt, we didn't change our names. That's one of the things that it says. We didn't change our names. We held on to our names. We didn't assimilate in that way to Egyptian society. And as such, you know, you know uh, someone told me yesterday in, in shul something beautiful. He said that he and his brother didn't grow up, now they're both rabbis, he and his brother grew up, um, you know, secular, assimilated Jews, right? They grew up with the names, listen to this, Mark and Anthony. 
Right? And now they're Moshe and Aaron. Right? But Mark and Anthony are the classic, like, Roman names, you know? Mark and Anthony. And, you know, he was talking about defining, defining your terms, right? Now they're Moshe and Aaron. So, so we didn't change our names. In other words, as much as we were enslaved in Egypt, it was a superficial aspect of enslavement because we still define success and life and our worldview according to us, even if physically we were enslaved. You know, there's a chapter, and I didn't read it. Someone related it to me, but it, it, it's, it's quite amazing. It's um, uh, Sharansky, when he was, um, you know, he's one, of, was one of the, he's one of the great heroes of the Jewish people. When he was um, in Russia, and he wanted to go to Israel, and they wouldn't let him do it, and, and they put him in solitary confinement. And there's a chapter in his book, I'm, I, like I said, it was just related to me secondhand, but you can look up the exact words. But basically, he was sitting in solitary confinement, and he was thinking, they can't beat me. I'm free as long as I have my values, and I believe in what I believe, and I'm free even if I'm in solitary confinement in the Soviet Union. They can't defeat me. So, and sure enough, he gets out of he gets out of Russia and he's reunited with his family. And now he's one of the you know government officials, you know, running running Israel. Incredible, incredible. But again, defining your terms and salvation, right? The book of redemption and the book of names. The ability to define your terms. Now, I can tell you in America, and I would generalize this to the West in general, success is defined completely by money. You know, there's a one-to-one correspondence in terms of the Western outlook. You got money in the bank, you're success. Your family life is in a shambles, doesn't matter. You're success, you got money in the bank. Your kids are drug addicts, you got money in the bank, you're success. Right? You know, you're cheating in business, you've been indicted by the government. All right, maybe you'll beat the charge. As long as you're not in prison, you're success. And you know, I've even heard people go, you know what? He's hid his money away. When he gets out of jail, he'll be fine. So even then, they still say you're a success. So now you're an indicted criminal. Your family has fallen apart. Your children are drug addicts. You got money in the bank, you're a success. I mean, does this make sense? Does this make sense that this is a viable Definition for success? Doesn't make sense at all? Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And yet, if someone doesn't, you know, there's a, 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 I had a a conversation with an old rabbi who's the head of a Torah institution in Jerusalem. And we only had a, a, a moment together, really. But he told me the following thing. He says, how do you know if a fish is alive? Right? So he says that, if it's moving in the water, seemingly, that's, that's proof that it's alive. But he said, no, that's not true. He said, because the stream, the current of the stream could just be carrying it down the river. Right? A lot of us are basically walking zombies. You know, they say that the righteous are dead even when they're alive. I'm sorry, the wicked are dead even when they're alive. And the righteous are alive even when they're dead. He says, what's the proof that the fish is alive? If it's moving against the stream, then you know, then you know it's alive. You see, the thing is, is that the culture that we live in, that's like a stream, it's just pulling us. And there are certain things that in order to actually be alive, we have to be proactive in. Otherwise, it's just another form of sleepwalking. So defining our terms is one of these things. If you don't define the term success and many other key terms, I'll I'll just touch on very briefly, success, truth, what's truth? I mean, you've got to have a definition for truth in your own mind. You must. Because I can tell you right now that we live in a world where truth means whatever you want to think. (laughs) Whatever you want to think, that's truth. In an effort that we should all just get along with each other. You like that? All right, that's true. You like that? All right, that's true. But is that really what you think truth is? You see, in my mind, 
and we've been discussing this, we live amidst a very extraordinarily detailed structure. The cosmos are structured, our DNA are structured, the balance of chemicals in the air or whatever it is, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, all that's incredibly detailed. The atomic structure is incredibly detailed. Everything's incredibly structured and detailed. There is a truth to existence. It exists on the moral level as well. There's one, one truth that's informing all of creation. Because otherwise, everything would just be willy-nilly. And we, we don't see that to be the case. So that means, from, from my perspective anyway, it would appear that there is an ultimate truth. That that's just logical. So, so, so there's accommodation. There's getting along with people. There's diplomacy. There's the ability to be plural, pluralistic and tolerant. All of these things are separate words. But truth? There's one truth. And we're very clear on it. The Torah is the truth. We're very unapologetic about that. Torah to net. That's the truth. So again, one has to ask themselves, how do I define truth? Is there an ultimate truth? Very important that someone, that, that everyone reaches the answer to that question for themselves. What's a friend? What's a friend? Another very important thing. Is a friend someone who you get drunk with and break the law with? You know, I'll tell you something. Or is a friend someone who, who helps you to do the right thing? You know, I, I, uh, I, um, I heard this one time, which I, I thought was really interesting. The Yetzirah, we all have a positive inclination and a negative inclination. So the Yetzirah, I heard, after 120, we stand before the heavenly court, and the Yetzirah comes in, and basically, we, we think our Yetzirahs are sort of like, you know, I'm behind the wheel, and our Yetzirahs riding shotgun. It's my partner in crime. It's my best buddy, right? You know, hey, do this, do that, all right, we'll do this, we'll do that, right? But then, after 120, the Eight Sahara comes in and turns state's witness, right? All of a sudden, it starts testifying against us. You know, it's like, you know, in terms of, like, crime dramas, the Eight Sahara pretends it's our best friend, but at the same time, it's wearing a wire, right, the whole time. And it's sort of like, wait a second, I thought you were on my side. You're on the government side the entire time? So, so in other words, what's a friend? What's a friend? That's the question. What's a friend? How do we define friend? Um, I'll tell you another thing. Love. You've got to have a definition for what love is. You know, a lot of times we can't make a breakthrough in terms of marriage or whatever it is. Because we don't know what love is. We don't know what marriage is. And we have some very poetic concepts in our brain, which is all well and good, but at a certain time we have to define our terms. What, what is it? What are my expectations? What do I want? And then once a person knows, bless him, once a person knows what they want, then they can say, oh, well, I can do that. In other words, there's certain things that the vagueness, the vagueness, it's almost like, you know, imagine like a special effect in a movie, like it's like a, a wisp of smoke, and it's just vague, and it just sort of like circles around us, and then it ties us up. So we have to demystify what these large terms are in our life. And then once you demystify them, you can make progress in them. And I can tell you, an Eitsa, a bit of advice is, if someone is having trouble with a particular mitzvah, whatever it is. One of the great pieces of advice is that someone should learn the halachas of that mitzvah. And the reason why that's so good is because, you know, intuitively you're like, well, wait, I'm having trouble with that mitzvah. The last thing I want to do is learn the details of that mitzvah. I want to stay very far away from that. But it's actually the opposite effect is, is true, because... 
A lot of times people are afraid of a mitzvah, whatever it is, because they have all these like emotional, you know, like irrational associations with what it is. And if they can just see it in a very clinical way on a page, they go, oh, okay, I can do that. Well, that's all it is. I thought it was something else. No, it's not that. Or, uh, you know what, I can, I can at least do half of that. Or, I'm surprised, I thought it was more. You know, so when they actually see what it is, the point is it demystifies it. That's the point. Because there's this emotional element, and the Yetzirah feeds on our ignorance. It feeds on our ignorance and uses it as a barrier to make breakthroughs. That, that's the point. That's the point. So, defining terms. I'll give you another. Um, I'll give you another one. Humility. Humility in the in the, in, in in as we understand it from the standpoint of, of Torah, right? So we were discussing this, right? So humility. So there's a story in the in the in the Talmud. Sages were sitting around a table, and one sage says, "Humility has disappeared from the world," and another sage thinks and says, "I'm humble," and then. You know, which is kind of funny because you think if he's saying I'm humble, that's the opposite of being humble, right? And then the first sage who said that humility has disappeared from the world says, oh, you're right, you are humble. Okay, I take it back. So from that, you see something very interesting about how the Torah understands what humility is. Okay? You see, humility doesn't mean to deny the truth. Like, for instance, if someone comes up to, say, Kobe Bryant, right? one of the great basketball stars, or maybe the greatest basketball star playing today. Someone comes up to Kobe Bryant and says, you're a great basketball player. And he says, no, I'm not. That's not humility. He's either a liar, because he is a good player. He's a great player. So he's either lying, or it's false modesty. No, it's not humility. That's what I'm saying. This is, this is, no, it's not humility. That's the point I'm making. It's, this is not humility for him to say that he's a... Uh, not a good basketball player. Because the truth is, he is a good basketball player. So if he says he's not a good basketball player, he's either lying, or it's false modesty, which is just another form of a lie, or he has low self-esteem. And he's not recognizing the quality that he has. So if you have a gift, whatever it is, and we all have gifts, You must recognize the gift because it's from God. And if you have a gift and you deny that you have this gift, whatever it is, then you're slapping God in the face on some level. Because God gave you that gift to use it in the service on some level. Yeah. So is it considered humble to recognize it and say thank you very much? Absolutely. You must start from the standpoint of truth. If you have a talent, you must recognize that you have this talent. You, you have to, yes. And then the question is, am I using it to the extent that I should be using it? Then, or, or, or now what is that talent in, in reference to the infinity of God, right? And so there are roles for humility to understand our relationship with God and, and God's infinity and everything like that. But we also simultaneously have to recognize the qualities that we have. We must. We absolutely must. In fact, there's a very interesting teaching that says that a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, should have an eighth of an eighth of arrogance. An eighth of an eighth of arrogance. That's what it says. So, you can look up the commentaries on it. I'll just tell you what my own personal understanding of it is. Is that, you see, the more one knows, especially the more one learns and the more one contemplates God, the more one realizes that God is so absolutely infinite that we're like a speck compared to God. Even though God puts an aspect of himself in us, that's our soul, so we have an inherent greatness to us. We have an absolute inherent greatness to us. But, you know, when you, compared to God, it's like nothing. So, so, so if, if someone is a legitimate Talmud Chacham, if they've really reached like very high levels of attainment and scholarship, right? They're going to know that on some level they're nothing compared to God. So they have to have what will be, in their own eyes, a degree of arrogance. Even if it's just an eighth of an eighth. In other words, it's not actual arrogance that they have. But in their own mind, because 
they're just trying to be totally pure and one with God, they will perceive it as arrogance. But that actually is just holding on to the, to the, to the proper bar of proper self-esteem. You see, because otherwise, everyone will just disappear into the infinity of God if they just want to be absolutely pure, right? So, but, but you must hold on to self-esteem. So, so it may appear to you as a little bit of arrogance, but that actually is necessary in order to maintain self-esteem. Okay, so, so in other words, for Talmud Chacham, what I'm saying is that arrogance isn't real arrogance, even if they perceive it as such. But they must actually make a, a proactive effort in terms of asserting themselves. But just a little bit. An eighth of an eighth will be enough for them. And that will be enough that they'll actually have self-esteem going through life. I'm hoping that I just communicated. Now, I'll tell you something else. Another aspect of humility. When you learn Torah from someone, right, you have to put yourself at that moment beneath them. Now, the example that I heard when this was explained to me was, imagine a cup. Like, I'm holding a cup over here, and you're a cup. So, in order for this cup above to pour into this cup who's listening, you have to be below the one pouring the cup in order to receive the flow from the cup. Now, imagine... Here's the cup, right? Here's the teacher. And now you're putting your cup above the teacher's cup. Now, how is the teacher going to pour his cup into your cup if your cup is above his cup? (laughs) You can't receive. You can't receive. So an aspect of humility when it comes to learning Torah and to serving God is to put yourself below, at least at that moment, in order to receive the flow. You know, that's just sort of like the, the, the physics of spirituality, if you will. Okay. Now, now I want to get back into this. Again, the theme that we're exploring here is the necessity of defining terms. So you see, humility in, 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 in contemporary society usually means a denial of one's attributes. Like, you don't want to make a fuss about it, so you pretend that, that, that you don't have this talent, which you actually have. So again, to repeat the point, you must, you must recognize, if you have a gift, that you have that gift. And the question is, how are you going to use that gift to make the world a better place? Okay? That's, that's number one. Again, in terms of friendship, what's a real friend? A friend is someone who helps you do the right thing. That's what a real friend is. Okay, what's, what's love? Okay, that's, that's too big a subject for now. <laughs> but, but I can tell you one thing about love. That the more you give to someone else, the more you come to love them. That's what it says in the Talmud. The more you give, the more you'll love. And we think the more I receive, the more I'll love. Like, you know what, I'm not so crazy about you these days. Give me something else and maybe I'll love you a little bit more. You know, that's how we tend to think of love. But the more you give, the more you'll love. But anyway, that's, that's, that's another subject. Truth. The Torah is truth. That's what it is. You know, success. Success is actually fixing your soul in this world. That's what it is. It's fixing your soul in this world. That's, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, there's an aspect to the soul which always remains pure and unsullied. So, uh, in, in that respect, you're right. But, each person has to make a tikkun, a fixing, during, during, this, during their lifetime. And we believe in Torah, we believe in reincarnation, we believe that we've been here several times. And we also believe that that's not the best case scenario, that I'm still down here fixing things. The idea is to finish fixing it already. You know? So, so, so that means that there's something that we haven't accomplished in previous lifetimes that we're here to correct. So in the, in the language of the sages, we talk about fixing our souls. So, so in terms of the actual details of why they use that phrase, so there's some, there's some aspect that needs fixing on, on a spiritual level. 
you know? And, um, well, I've heard different numbers. I've heard different numbers. Um, but, but I heard Reb Shlomo Karlbach refer to this world as basically, you know, it's like a bit of a hospital. Everyone who's in this world is a little bit sick. And everyone who's in this world has something to fix. All of us. You know? And I heard something recently which was interesting. A little bit scary, actually. Which is that if there's something difficult for you in this world, that's probably pointing toward what you have to fix. Because, and here was the logic, which I thought was interesting, and I don't remember the source, but the logic was that if something, if you're really good at something, that that's something you've already fixed in a previous lifetime. That's why it's so easy and you're so good at it in this lifetime. So a lot of times we just want to concentrate on the things that we're best on. But if there's something that we're not so good at, and we're talking about character-wise now, in service of God-wise right now, that that's probably something that, we, that we're here to fix, since, since we're here to fix something that's broken. So if there's something in our life that's hard... That's probably a sign that that might be the thing that we need to focus in on, by the way. Now, having said that, let me just say one more thing. It's an Ishbitzer teaching. Um, he, he connects it to the month of Elul, but it's, it's all year round, which is that um, he says, Elul is the time to fix what you're doing right. <laughs> right? Usually we don't think about fixing what I'm doing right. We think about fixing what I'm not doing right, you know? So what does he mean that Elul is the time of fixing what you're doing right? Because the question is, a lot of us are doing all sorts of things that are great, but the question is, are we doing it with all of our hearts? So the thing is that a lot of times, if you, before you can get to the step of fixing something that you're not doing right, concentrate on your strengths and your positives. You know? Take what you're already doing right and do an even better job at that. And that will empower you and give you the strength to conquer other areas in your life. You understand? Because the personalities and effort and it's a very complicated, labyrinthine mess, basically. We're, we're basically all messes, you know. And if we really want to harness our, our strength and our ability... To start from a negative standpoint just puts us behind the eight ball, and it's almost impossible to make any positive moves. We have to really start with what we're doing right, and then that will propel us forward. Okay? So, so again, just to repeat the point, this is Sefer Shmos, the book of names, and it's also Sefer Geula, the book of redemption. And one of the keys to redemption is that we fix these names, that we fix our ability to, to make breakthroughs. And the way to do that is by allowing us to define our own terms. Otherwise, we get trapped. Now, I'll tell you an interesting midrash that I heard from Rabbi Kesson. He said that a year before we left Mitzrayim, Egypt, all the Jewish people stopped speaking Lashon Hara, about each other. So there was no more negative speech, no more evil speech about each other. And that that created a level of unity which allowed the redemption to take place. And speech is very, very, very deep. Again, we're connecting Sefer Shmos, the book of names, right? How you speak, what you call, because to, to name something is to speak out a name. And the book of redemption, it's two at the same time. So speech and redemption. Now, when you speak, you create reality for other people. Okay? When God created the world, God spoke the world. God doesn't have a body. There's no physicality to God. But our, our, our tradition is that God spoke the world into existence. So here you see on the most fundamental level, the connection between speech and creation. And I can tell you that with each other, when you speak about someone, you create a reality in their minds. And the example that I would give is, if someone came in here and was sitting here dressed in rags, and I told you that that was a very rich man, that he was a multimillionaire, 
You would treat that person differently, I guarantee you. And you would say to yourself, you know, and you'd make all sorts of connections. He's dressed in rags, or he's a multimillionaire. Well, he's a genius. He's probably a genius, number one. So now, now the guy in rags is not only rich, but he's a genius. And look how humble he is, you know, that he has forsaken wealth. You know, you, now, imagine, now you're looking at him. He's a guy off the street. And now you look at what your reality is. Your reality is this. This is this phenomenal personality. I'm, I'm lucky to be in the same room with him. I wonder what his story is. Well, I hope I can get to know him. Maybe he'll even give me some cash. Right? I mean, you know, I've got some projects. He might be interested in them. You know? So, but look, just because I told you something about this person, which in this case is completely false, in my example, it's completely false, nonetheless, you now are inhabiting this reality and you're in a different world. A different world has been created that you are now inhabiting vis-a-vis this person. Now, can you imagine if I say something negative about something? Someone? God forbid? Now, they're not worthy of your time. They're not even worthy of a hello. Ugh. Right? There's now death, like this connection. Uh, at least it was, maybe it wasn't positive between the two of you before, but at least it wasn't negative. Now it's active, there's active negativity because you've accepted some piece of information about that person. Right? Because remember, Lushan Horat says kills three people. The speaker, the listener, and the person who's spoken about. So a lot of people think, you know what? All right, if I, I'm not speaking Lushan Horat, but if I hear Lushan Horat, it's not the end of the world. I'm telling you, it's terrible to even hear it. It's, it's terrible to even hear it. Because on some level, you're impacted and your perception of that person is impacted. You know? So, so speech creates reality. And God brought another reality into existence. When he took the Jewish people out of Egypt, he brought the Torah in the world. Or more accurately phrased, he revealed the Torah in the world. The Torah became revealed. Remember, the Torah existed before the world was even created. But now this dimension, this, this, this quantum level of reality, which always saturated all of existence and all of reality, was all of a sudden revealed. And what's interesting to me is this, this, new, this new level of the world was revealed, was created, a new world was created And part of that was because the Jewish people stopped speaking falsehood. Stopped speaking Lashon Hara. So just like God created the world through speech, we, so to speak, by perfecting speech, brought a new level of reality into the world, a new stage of creation in the world through the perfection of our speech. Another creation became revealed that existed within the world. So so now I just want to point out something which is uh, something that I noticed you know, could you bring me a a sitter one of those sidurim so I want to quote it exactly in in the beginning of uh, just one of the black ones, yeah, that's fine Um, in the beginning of Shmos, it's like, thank you it's like the I think it's uh, starting with the second verse the second Pasuk you have some really unusual psukim. Uh, a pasuk is a verse, so some really weird verses, basically. Okay? Starting with the second verse. Saying that these are the... Um, that, that Yaakov of Enum, right? Jacob went down to, 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 to Egypt with his house. Okay? Ishu and now, listen to this Pasuk. I'm going to read you three Pasukim. Here's the first Pasuk. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. End of the Pasuk. Yisachar, Zvulin, Ovinyamin. End of the Pasuk. Dan, Vinaftali, Gad, Asher. End of the Pasuk. These are very unusual Pasukim. There's no verb in them. It's just the names of the tribes. And let me ask you this. 
If you're going to name the tribes, that's thematically one, one unit. So why not put it into all one Pasuk? Why break them up into different Pesukim? And it doesn't say anything about their houses or their families or their kids or anything like that. It's very unusual. And again, it's striking to me, there's no verb, there's no sentence structure here. What kind of verse is that? Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, the Yehuda. End of the verse. Strange. So, so I'd like to give you just, I was kind of thinking about this, and I just want to kind of give you my own understanding of it, okay? You see, unity leads to redemption. And like we said, when, when, when the Jewish people stopped speaking Lashon Hara for a year, that brought the redemption from Egypt. So it's a very powerful unifying thing, not speaking Lashon Hara. By the way, just so you know, just on a, on a practical level, Lashon Hara is often translated as gossip. And there's, you know, the Jewish people are the only nation in the world that have detailed laws for speech, for just casual conversation. It's quite amazing. We're the only people in the world who have this. And um, speaking the truth can also be Lashon Hara. People think just if I tell a lie or something like that, speaking the truth can also be Lashon Hara. I'll give you an example. If you say, that guy, um, you know, that guy was in jail. Now, that can be Lashon Hara because, well, it's true he was in jail. Yeah, but it's Lashon Hara because... Why are you saying it? Now, to show you how detailed these things are, if someone wants to go into business with that guy, then you might even have the obligation to say something like he was in jail because you don't want someone to be fleeced or misled. So they must know that information so that there are ways to actually say it. I can't give you all the details. I don't know them all. But there are ways where you can convey that information. Someone's interested in a shidduch, in a marriage partner. And the guy's been divorced seven times, right? That's a pretty important piece of information. So you can, you can say that maybe. There's certain times where personal information actually you have to share in the appropriate way. However, there are other times where, let's say I'm going out for dinner with this guy and he's just a social guy just to kind of have a drink with. And I say, well, that person's been divorced seven times. It's completely inappropriate. We say, well, it's true, he has been divorced seven times. Well, yeah, but what does that have to do with the fact that we're going to have a beer? So, you see, you see, something can be true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not Lashon Hara. By the way, the, it's, it, i tell you one law that I learned about Lashon Hara, that, that um, again, just on a practical basis, when I first heard this, I got very angry. Because I was like, what are these halakhas trying to do to me? You know what I mean? They're just, ah, I can't take it. And yet, I give you this example because my initial reaction to hearing this was so negative, and yet, now I think it's a fantastic halakha. I actually see the wisdom in it. So, let me tell you what it is. Let's say, just because I'm a man, so I'll give it this example from the male perspective, okay? So, I'm a man, and there are two women, let's say there are three women standing, uh, in front of me, and I notice one of them is wearing a beautiful dress. Beautiful in my eyes, right? So I walk up to the three of them standing together, and I say to that particular woman, I say, oh, that's a beautiful dress. That's Lashon Hara. Why is that Lashon Hara? Because the other two women standing next to her are going to go, what about my dress? <laughs> and that's just, that's just the reality of the way humans work. And by the way, that would hold by a man too. It's not just by a woman. Holds, holds by a man too. So there's a time if she's by herself and then you can, you can say it to her directly in a way where other people are not going to have their feelings hurt. You know, it doesn't mean you can't compliment her on her dress, by the way. It's just you have to find the, 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 the right way and the right time to do it. Okay. So, so now... Unity leads to redemption. And a beautiful example of this is Yaakov Avinu is on his deathbed. And he says, 
Come, gather round, assemble. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the end of days. So from this you see a connection between people gathering around and assembling and coming together and the end of days coming. It's just one of many, many examples. Okay? Unity leads to redemption. So, you know, we talked about it at length uh, last week. If, if you want to hear that talk, I like that talk a lot, actually. It's called, How, How Cool Is It That We're Immortal? <laughs> that was the name I came up with. Um, but anyway, that's online, Torah on iTunes.com, if you want to hear that. But we talked about at the end how the story of Yosef and his brothers doesn't seemingly end where everyone thinks it ends. Because everyone thinks Yosef reveals himself and they all cry on each other's shoulders and everyone is happy and everything like that. Well, there's one more chapter to that story, but it happens a Parsha later, all the way at the end of the Parsha. This is in the Chumash itself, and so a lot of people don't know about this part of the story. It's at the end of Ayechi. In fact, it's just about the very end of Sefer Breshis, this, this little section. And I'm not going to go into it in depth. If you want to hear it, you can listen to it in the, uh, the other talk. But basically, the brothers were still not convinced that Yosef had forgiven them. And they offered to become his slaves, and they were afraid he's even going to try to do away with them, and everything like that. So you see that there was still division among the family when, uh, when the story ends, when, when, when Sefer Breshis ends. And now we're at the very beginning of Sefer Shmos, and I'd like to suggest the following, that there were still divisions within the family, that there wasn't unity within the family yet. And of course, Sefer Shmos begins with the, with the children of Israel being in this state of exile, in this enslaved state. And so that's why I'd like to suggest that the names of the tribes are divided up into separate psukim to suggest that unity did not exist among the Jewish people yet. And that that was a condition of our exile. And now I'd like to give a really far out kind of thought, okay? How do you signal a pasuk, a verse, ending in the Torah? Well, in the Torah scroll itself, there's no indication of when one verse begins and when one verse ends. Okay? And that's because, on a mystical level, when the Torah was first given, when the Torah was given, God spoke out the entire thing, like all at once. There were no breaks. It was one long word. The Torah itself is one long name of God. Okay? Like one 600,000 letter name of God. And all of the words within the Torah, the Ramban says, are all names of God, by the way. So, you want to hear something really cool? Something that I noticed. Which is, the way you say the word word in Hebrew is mila. That's how you say word. Mila also means to cut, as in a bris mila. Okay? So, in other words, every time, like, because there are white spaces between the words in the Torah. So, originally it was one long word. So, every time we make a cut, which is Mila, we create a word, which is Mila. Meaning, every time we cut, we make a word. And that's why the word cut and word are the same word in Hebrew. Mila. Okay. Now, listen to this. In the printed Chumashim, though, not in the Torah scroll itself, but in the printed Chumashim, what indicates the end of a verse? Two dots. One dot on top of the other dot. Okay? So like one ball almost balancing on top of another ball, but there's a space in between. Okay? Two dots. Now two dots is actually a, one of the vowel signs in the Torah, in Hebrew. And the sound that two dots make, one dot over another dot, is silence. That's the silence sound. So in other words, what, what is separating the psukim? Well, on some level, silence, because it's all really one name on the deepest level, right? But now I want to connect it back to this idea 
that the brothers are in separate psukim because there was division among them. Okay? I want to say that there were walls of silence between them. There were walls of silence separating breakthroughs in communication and closeness. You see, in terms of how we manage our relationships, sometimes something needs to be said. You must say something. And sometimes something needs not to be said. Don't say it. Don't say it. You know, I'll tell you something. When uh, in, 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 in the Jewish faith, when uh, a man and woman get married, and at the end of the ceremony they break the glass, right? So there are a lot of very beautiful things, tons, tons and tons of beautiful things that are said about breaking the glass, okay? But do you want to know the official answer? The official answer isn't so spiritual, by the way. I think that this is why, this is why it's not quoted that often. I'm going to tell you the official answer. That doesn't mean that the other ones are wrong, by the way. But I'm going to tell you what the official answer for why you break a glass under a chuppah. It's a lesson, a very strong lesson between the bride and groom, that just like a... Just like a glass is broken and can't be repaired, there are words that are said that can't be taken back. So be careful what you say. Pretty strong, no? Can you imagine that a, a, a wedding ceremony is ending with that teaching? That's a, that's, that teaching is thousands of years old, by the way. It's like a glass breaks and it can't be put back together. Certain things can be said and they can't be taken back. Be careful what you say. Congratulations, bride and groom! <laughs> Strike up the band! We've got food for everyone! Plenty of dancing! Right? I mean, it's strong! It's strong! It's very strong! So, there's certain things that should be said, that have to be said. If you want to get rid of these walls of silence between the tribes, you have to communicate. You have to break it down. You have to say. Sometimes it's hard to say. But you have to say it. And other times, don't say it. <laughs> Do not say it. Just don't say it. Don't say it. Right? So, so this ties in. This ties into something that I heard from Rib Shlomo. Which is, there are times to serve God publicly. And there are times to serve God secretly. And you have to know when to do which. And that's one of the reasons a person needs a Rebbe. To know when to serve God publicly and to when to serve God in secret. So, for instance, two examples that he gave. Or at least one he gave. Your name on a building. A lot of people, it's like, they love to give anonymously. And it's like, like death to them to think that they're going to have their name on a building. But the Talmud says... It's a good thing to have your name on the building because it encourages other people to give. So that's an example where you have to serve God publicly. What's an example where you serve God secretly? A lot of times when you do chesed, when you do kindness or you give charity or tzedakah to someone else, you do it in a very secretive way. But sometimes you do it publicly, sometimes you do it privately. An example that Rib Shlomo gave that I thought was really interesting was he says, you, you run into a party and this person announces to the whole room, I'm not speaking Russian Hara anymore. Right? Because whatever the example was, that was something where the guy had to say it publicly. So that's, that's really interesting. And now I'm just going to finish with this one last thought. And I heard this from Reb Shlomo. And this is, I want everyone just to really take this in, please. If someone ever tries to tell you that they're trying to make a positive change, okay? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to keep Shabbos better. I'm going to try not to speak Lashon Hara. Or I'm going to try to come on time to shul. Or whatever it is. I'm just going to try to lose weight. Whatever it is that the person says, don't ever, ever, ever say to that person, oh yeah, right. Don't, that's death. You're killing that person. You're actually killing that person. Don't ever say to a person who's trying to do something better, yeah, you've said it before, I know, right, right, yeah, yeah. Good luck. 
Don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. And Shem should just bless us that we should really see this exile turn into redemption before our eyes. And we should just see just, just the most wonderful things between us. And if there are any walls between us at all, they should all break down and we should all be together. Okay, Amen. agree with you. Yeah.